in the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you're new to our church, we've been going through 1 Corinthians from chapter 1, verse 1, and going all the way through. We haven't skipped any of it. It's taken us several months, but now we are up to chapter 11. Um, and Paul, you know, so the past, from chapter 8 up until basically chapter 10, three chapters, Paul was talking about, if you remember, don't go into the pagan temples, right? Don't go eat that food sacrificed to idols. Don't participate in that. Don't think you're invulnerable to spiritual influence and even demonic activity there. And, um, and, uh, and he says as well, he taught the people, but if you're going to if you're going to buy meat in the, in the marketplace, don't worry if that meat's been sacrificed to idols. You can eat it at home. You can eat it at a non-believer's house. Those things are fine. But uh, be careful not to stumble your brother and sister. If anybody says that's been sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it, right? Does that ring a bell? So that was chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now chapter 11, we're moving on to a new topic here. A new topic here. But as we'll see, for pretty much all of 1 Corinthians, things are interconnected. Because they're one church with a one, you know, they're one people of God with issues that permeate into all sorts of different areas of their lives. So we'll see a lot of interconnections here. Now, I'm going to be reading to you from the New International Version today. Now, I normally read from the English Standard Version, but um, this, this is a really, really challenging passage. So maybe you can sense that by me saying I'm reading not from my usual version. I'm reading from the NIV because I think the translation and the way that they handle the Greek, I think is, is better in certain key respects. So let me read through this now. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, I, really, I really, you know, thank God and love the fact that we are preaching through entire books of the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, I love that because it forces you to preach through things that are challenging, uncomfortable, weird, or weird-seeming, at least to us at times, that, that make us go, what do, we, what do we do with this? But because it is God's word, we believe that it is, it is wisdom of God, it is truth, and there is something relevant and practical that is meant to be applied to our lives as well. It is useful to us, as Paul told Timothy, for, for building us up, for teaching us, rebuking us, um, encouraging, encouraging us as the people of God. Now, um, this, this is a very, very challenging passage for, for two reasons for me. One is that the Greek here is 
There is, this is a notorious passage from the Bible. Okay. There is so much written on this. There's so many different views on, on different things. So it is really, really challenging in what's happening in the original languages, what's happening in terms of the culture of that time, trying to figure that out through archaeology, through writings of other contemporaries during that time to understand the picture of what's happening there in Corinth. Extremely challenging. The second thing that makes this really, really challenging is that I think this is a passage that is going to be very, very difficult for many people in our day and age, especially, especially for women. Um, you know, when I, was, when I was reading through this passage, I was going to write down all these questions that we can ask, you know, about this, but it would take up like a page and a half. I was like, okay, forget it. We're just going to go through it and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through this and deal with these different issues and things here. But I think the reality is that when you read this, and maybe particularly for women as you read this, it can feel like, oh boy, gosh, what, what is the Bible saying here? What is Paul saying here? Is that really for us? Because there are things here, um, especially if you've had certain negative experiences or have experienced um, sexism or abuse or different things like that, that there are certain things that Paul's saying here that can be like, what in the world is he talking about here? Is that really, really for us today? What does he mean by that? And, and, and I acknowledge that, and I think that's really, really challenging here in this passage. Um, and, and I'll do my best to address some of the things and, and get at what I think Paul is saying here and what I think God is trying to teach us and tell us through his word. Now, to, to understand what's happening here in Corinth, first, let, let me just point out so he's talking about prayer and prophecy here. Um, and so what he's talking about is what was happening in the public worship of the church. So this is the church gathering together, okay? What was happening in a public setting. And there were men as well as women praying and prophesying to the congregation. Now, that is a huge deal. That is a huge deal, especially for women. Because for a woman to, in 2,000 years ago, in that setting, coming out of Judaism and entering into the church, for women to come up into a place of, of leadership, of prayer, public prayer for the group, of prophesying, speaking in behalf of the Lord for revelations that they have received from God, these things were, were very new and were extremely radical but they were what was brought about by the gospel and God's design for men and women. And, and the gospel really was doing so much to advance women in that time because women were and are made in the image of God. Um, Rodney Stark in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, wrote about the things that were happening and that women were experiencing um, because of the gospel. Uh, he, he wrote this, and it's, it's a, a bit lengthy, but I think it does a good job of painting a picture there of these changes that were taking place. He said, because Jesus, the 12 apostles, Paul, and the prominent leaders in the early church in Jerusalem were all men, the impression prevails that early Christianity was primarily a male affair. Not so. From earliest days, women predominated. Women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. Christian writers have long stressed that Jesus' attitude toward women was revolutionary. For him, the sexes were equal. Recent objective evidence leaves no doubt that early Christian women did enjoy far greater equality with men than did their pagan and Jewish counterparts. A study of Christian burials in the catacombs under Rome, based on 3,733 cases, found that Christian women were nearly as likely as Christian men to be commemorated with lengthy inscriptions. This near equality in the commemoration of males and females is something that is peculiar to Christians and sets them apart from the non-Christian populations of the city. This was true not only of adults, but also of children as Christians lamented the loss of a daughter as much as that of a son, which was especially unusual compared with other religious groups in Rome. 
Of course, there's overwhelming evidence that from the earliest days, Christian women often held leadership roles in the church and enjoyed far greater security and equality in marriage. In Romans 16, 1-2, Paul introduces and commends to the Roman congregation our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the church at Sencrea, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Deacons were important leaders in the early church with special responsibilities for raising and dispersing funds. Clearly, Paul saw nothing unusual in a woman filling that role, nor was this an isolated case or limited to the first generation of Christians. The superior situation of Christian women via V, their pagan sisters, began at birth. The exposure, meaning just leaving a baby out to die, the exposure of one unwanted infants was widespread in the Roman Empire, and girls were far more likely than boys to be exposed. Even in large families, more than one daughter was hardly ever reared. A study based on inscriptions was able to reconstruct 600 families and found that of these, only six had raised more than one daughter. 1% 1 of those 600 families had raised more than one daughter. In keeping with their Jewish origins, Christians condemned the exposure of infants as murder. As Justin Martyr put it, we have been taught that it is wicked to expose even newborn children, for we would then be murderers. So substantially more Christian and Jewish female infants lived. One last paragraph here. The Christian position on divorce was defined by Jesus. This was a radical break with past customs. A survey of marriage contracts going all the way back to ancient Babylon found that they always contained a divorce clause specifying payments and divisions of property and the cause of divorce need be nothing more than a husband's whim, right? Um, as, as I mentioned before, Rabbi Hillel, one of the rabbis says that if your wife cooks food for you and messes up the dinner, that is grounds for divorce, you know, when the Old Testament says, if you find something unseemly in her, right? They took that and turned it into anything, right? A husband's whim. But the early church was unswerving in its commitment to the standards set by Jesus. In addition, although like everyone else, early Christians prized female chastity, unlike anyone else, they rejected the double standard that gave men sexual license. As Henry Chadwick explained, Christians, quote, regarded unchastity in a husband as no less serious a breach of loyalty and trust than unfaithfulness in a wife, unquote. And there are so many other examples of what the truth of God and what God had meant all along, because God does not change throughout history, is that men and women are both created in the image of God and, and women are, are valuable and are not inferior to men. Now, so... This, the, as the Holy Spirit was moving in the church and people were, were understanding this more and women were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit as well, they were more and more involved in, in ministry, in leadership in many different ways. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, women, as I said earlier, they were praying and they were prophesying in public, in the church gathering. Now, before this, you know, like the gathering of, the, of the, the Jews was so different. If you wanted to start a synagogue, you needed 10 people. Women didn't even count towards that number. It had to be 10 men. Doesn't matter if you have 100 women and, and five men. No, no good. You need 10 men, right? Things were, were so different. But in Christ now we see that women were praying, they were prophesying, and they were so empowered by the gospel and, and this design, this vision of, of God. Now, so what's going on here? This is what's happening. This was happening in the church in Corinth. Now, Paul here, though, in verse 3, says, but. He says, but. Now, this is a very big but here when he says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What's happening here? I think what, what's happening is Paul is saying is, yes, there, there has been such empowerment, liberation, and, and, and elevation of women from many of the abuses and, and the practices of the past and of the, the pagan cultures around and what we see in Greco-Roman society. No, that's not what God meant in the gospel. That's not the vision that God has. But, and if I could paraphrase him, but 
that doesn't mean everything goes out the window. That doesn't mean there are no differences whatsoever between men and women. I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, yes, men and women are of equal worth. They're both created in the image of God, but there are still differences. Um, and, and here we see uh, when he says the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God, that there is this order and there is this design within the church and within marriage as well. But here we're talking about the gathered people in the church that doesn't get thrown out of the window that is a part of God's design. Now that's, that's hard, right? That's hard for modern sensibilities. And perhaps that's why in verse three, Paul has this funky order here. It, it seems like he's going in this like chain of command or this order or something like that, right? Christ to man, man to woman. And then he gets this order mixed up, mixed up and he says, God to Christ, right? You would think it would be God, Christ, man, woman. But at the end, he puts God Christ. Why does he do that? I feel like it's almost as if he is to, you know, he's reminding the people who may be thinking this exact way that no, no, if you're thinking that women are inferior, that means they're less valuable than men in some way because of this order, because of this design of God, it's not true because if, if women are inferior or less valuable than men, of less worth than men, then you're saying also that Christ is of less value and less worth than God because Jesus submits to the Father, because Jesus defers to the Father, because there is that design within the Godhead here. Uh, and Paul's saying that's, that's not the case, is it? The, the early church fathers spent hundreds of years really wrestling through this and, and, and coming up with the precious doctrine that, that we take for granted now that Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father are three. They're the Trinity. They're one, but they're also different. But just because Jesus submits to the Father doesn't make him in any way of less value or worth than the Father. There can be, it, it, is a, it is a very modernistic, important notion that says, if you do different things, that implies you have different value. Not even within the Trinity. They do different things, they have different roles, but all three are fully God, they're fully glorious, and they're equal in worth and value. So Paul is, I think Paul is establishing that from the beginning. There is this order, there is a design, but it does not mean that man or woman, either one is better or worse than the other. They have different roles in the design of God. Now, so what, what, exactly, what, what exactly is happening here though? What is happening in the church in Corinth? Now, there's so much going on here. Okay, let me try to explain it this way. I'll do my best. So the setting was the church getting together. The church is getting together. Now, what I think was happening, and I think you know, everybody, most theologians would agree with this, is that there are these head coverings that the women were wearing. Head coverings could be, there are two major interpretations of this. That covering, some people think it means their long hair. The long hair of women covers them. The short hair of men means uncovered. The other major view is that this is a physical covering, like a hood a hood or a shawl. So the women would wear these hoods into the worship ceremony. Without getting into the nuances of Greek and everything that's going on here, I think the second option, the latter, makes more sense. The women were wearing these hoods into worship or a shawl. So either way, I think the point is the same. There was a covering for the women, whereas the men were not supposed to be covered. I think either way, either situation, you end up in the same place. And, and what was happening in the Corinthian church, let's say it was a hood, was that the women were saying, wow, in the gospel, you know, Jesus changes everything. The gospel changes everything. I have, I have the Holy Spirit just as much as any man has the Holy Spirit. We are all one in Christ. I'm made in the image of God. We're all of equal worth and value. And these hoods... These hoods serve to represent um, 
society, in that society, in that culture, their understanding of respect for male leadership within the church, within the spiritual environment or within the synagogue, um, their understanding of, of God's design for male leadership in those places, right? And it served to represent distinctions. Women wore the hoods, men didn't. Now, what was happening was the women were saying, I'm, I'm free in Jesus, and they're taking their hoods and they're throwing them off, right? Like, like a graduation cap, basically, right? Like, I'm Christ, you know? I don't need this anymore. You're no better than me. We're all equal, and they're, they're throwing off the hoods. Now, I, I think this is what is happening there. Now, as they're doing this, though, what, what they were doing was they were flouting accepted conventions in Corinth that women and men were different and that women wore these head coverings. It was a sign of femininity. It was a sign of them being women. It was a sign of them respecting the male leadership within maybe the synagogue or, or whatever environment. It was a part of the culture at that time. Okay? So they were, they were flouting these conventions saying, I don't need to do this anymore. Perhaps this is kind of like um, what we see people do today now when we see verses like Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ. Now, this is a really popular verse of um, our, evangel- uh, our egalitarian brothers and sisters, right? Who, who, would, who would argue or uh, say that, you know what? There, there are no more differences of, of roles or things like that. You know, look, we're all one in Christ. But that's not what Galatians 3.28 is saying. Galatians 3.28 is emphasizing unity in Christ. It's emphasizing our unity in Christ. It is not annihilating our diversity, the fact that there are differences between us. If the emphasis is unity in how the walls are broken down, how we are now in one family, all of us, Jew, Gentile, because we believe in Christ, because we're covered by his blood, the blood that he shed, not that now there are no differences between us. There are no genders. We're all androgynous. Sex doesn't matter. That's not the point of Galatians 3.28. But I think there, there is this kind of... Um, perspective going on in the Corinthian church that these things don't matter. So they're kind of throwing, throwing all of these things out. But Paul's saying is, no, 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 no. No, there are certain things that were actually a part of God's design that are not meant to be thrown out. So let me, let me break it down this way. So there were two errors that were taking place in the Corinthian church by the women who were doing this, throwing off the shawls, and it may not have been all of them. And the men who were also of this view, right? So it might've been a mixed group. There were two primary errors here. The first one, I'll, I'll put it this way. The error of gender, of saying that there were no more gender distinctions. That was, that was the first error, right? Um, you know, uh, gender distinctions are not a social construct, Paul's saying. This is not just a part of our culture that is relative and it doesn't matter. This is divine design. This is divine design. Now, well, we, could, we could see that here from verse six. So this is stuff here. When he says, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, what's going on here? Are you saying women can't have short haircuts? No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> don't, don't worry if you have like a, a pixie cut or something like that. I'm going to get to that. Don't worry, men. If you have long hair, hair here, you're feeling nervous? Don't worry. Don't feel nervous, okay? I'm going to explain all that later on as well. We'll get to that. But what's Paul saying here? He's saying that why would it be a disgrace for a woman to cut her hair really short? Why would? Because in that Corinthian culture, if a woman cut her hair like that, basically she would no longer look like a woman. She would look like a man, okay, in that Corinthian culture. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying... This stop. That's not appropriate. That's not appropriate. We don't do that, right? We don't do that in the Corinthian culture of that time. We don't do that. Now, you can see where I'm getting to with, with our haircuts today, but Paul's saying, no, no, th- that would be a discourage. We shouldn't do that. What he's saying is that men and women are different. Men should look like men, should cut their hair like men, should dress like men. Women are not men, men are not women, and women should cut their hair like women, women should dress like women. There are differences. There are differences between the genders. That's, that's what he's saying here. 
Now, we, we live in a society, this is important because we live in a society that more and more is saying that gender is just a social construct. It doesn't matter what chromosomes you're born with. If you're a man, you can be a woman. If you're a woman, you could be a man. Or, you know, or that gender doesn't exist as a concept. It's just made up as a social construct. Gender can be totally fluid. And, and we're moving more and more that direction, especially in places like the Bay Area, like, like major cities in America. But what Paul is saying here is that, no, no, there are distinctions that are, that are real, that are real. And God made us that way. And that is important. We don't throw that out because of the gospel, right? These are things that are real and that matter. So the first error about gender distinctions. The second related error has to do with gender roles. Gender roles, the roles, not just physical differences or how we appear, how we look, but also roles uh, within the church and within marriage. Now, a lot of people nowadays will say, oh, gender roles, that's a, those are relics of patriarchy. And, and you know, maybe people in Corinth are saying, that's not representative of life in the spirit or something like that. But in verse three, as we saw earlier, there is an intentionality. There is a design within creation. And when we ignore these roles, when, we, when, when women of Corinth threw off their hoods, um, uh, that was a way of, of basically saying, God, uh, I'm rebelling against your order that you have designed, that you have created. Now, so when Paul says here that when the, the uncovering happens, when a woman throws her hood off, she dishonors her head. Well, what does that mean? What, what, her own head or her head in verse three? Well, the head of woman is man, is a man. I, I think it's probably both. It, when she throws the hood off, she's dishonoring herself because she is a woman made by God, and that's important. And she's also dishonoring um, the man. Now, uh, what does that mean? Does that mean any man? Like, in the Corinthian church, the women were supposed to, you know, um, follow the lead of any man there within that church? No, no, it doesn't mean that. What it does mean, though, is that this general understanding that there is a design and an order within marriage as well as within the church, and particularly, we believe that the church is supposed to be led by biblically qualified men serving as elders, as 1 Timothy chapter 3 teaches, right? So um, when there, were, there was this hood being thrown off, and Paul is saying that this is dishonoring to the design of, of God. So that's what's happening there. Now, in verse seven, what's, let me read this here as we move on here. It says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, oh, yikes. <laughs> that's, man, that sounds bad. That sounds really bad, doesn't it? Nowadays, you know, it's like you read it, you're like, oh gosh, you know, like, what do, what do you mean here? Like, man gets to be the glory of God? And then woman's like, I get to be this dude's glory? Come on, man. Again, you know, that's, that's, that's a really, really raw deal, doesn't it? Now, doesn't it say, though, in the Bible that women are also made in the image of God? Yes, absolutely. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it is not just the men who are made in the image of God. It is also women. Men and women are unique creations of God made in his image to image him, to represent him. And, and, and it's not just men, it is men and women. Um, that is absolutely true. Well, what, is, what does Paul mean then here by this about the woman is the glory of man and man is the glory of God? What, what is he, he talking about here? Well, there's a hint, I think, from verses 14 and 15 when Paul says, you know, a woman's long hair is her glory, but if a man has really short hair, it's a disgrace. Now, disgrace can be translated dishonor as well. So we see these opposites here. The opposite of glory, it, glory is dishonor, right? So what, what do I think, what is Paul saying here? I think what Paul is saying here is when, when women recognize the, the divine design of, of God, when they, when they recognize that um, and, and they honor man in that way, it brings man glory. It is man's glory when they honor them in that way, okay? 
I think that's what he's saying from verses um, 14 through 15. Now, look here in verses 8 through 9. This sounds really bad too. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That sounds really bad too. <laughs> Gosh, like what do, we, what do we do with this here? This, is, this four in verse eight is the explanation here about the glory, right? And this, this is the reality here. This is God's design. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, we read that and go, oh man, helper, you know? But helper, the woman being made as man's helper does not mean that she is a slave. It does not mean that she is a lackey. What, what this means is that God has created another being, woman, in his own image so that man and woman, two people creating the image of God together could fulfill God's commands. To, to be fruitful and to multiply and to represent him throughout the earth and that man could not do this alone. So God created another being in his own image, not of inferior value or worth than man, but that together they would be able to do this. But there was an order. There was a design there within um, creation. So going back into verse seven, what Paul's saying is when a woman understands and can receive this design of God in her heart and to respect the men in her life, whether it be her husband or um, the male elders of the church, when, when she recognizes this and lives according to this design, she honors the man. And that, that is his glory. That is his glory. Similarly, when men, when we lead in the church, or in our marriage, when we lead in such a way where we realize that we are under Christ's authority and we take our leadership cues from Jesus by leading the way that he does, by laying down our lives, if your husband laying down your life and being a servant for your wife, or if you are a leader, a male leader, an elder in the church, by being willing to be a good shepherd, by laying down your life for the sheep, as Jesus taught us, when we're willing to do that, we are following the example of Christ. We're honoring Christ, and this brings him glory. This is his glory. I think that's, that's what Paul is saying. That is the design here. So what is the upshot of this? Why, why is this, this so important? These differences between men and women, and, and these verses here are so important. We have to understand they're not rooted in the culture of the times. They're rooted in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, before anything got messed up, before Adam sinned and didn't do a good job of leading Eve. He should have stopped her. He, should have, he, should have, he, he, he was right there watching her eat that fruit, right? He didn't do a good job. Before sin entered into the world, this was God's design, and it was good. This is so important for us to understand because this is how there are many things in our culture that are cultural. There are many things in the Bible that we'll read about are cultural. We say, what do we do with that? Head coverings? Come on. And then because of that, we throw a lot of things in the Bible out. But we have to distinguish between what's cultural and what is a principle. This is a principle rooted in creation, this order, not to be thrown out. There are many things in the Bible that are cultural that we don't do. Greet each other with a holy kiss. What if I told you right now, turn to your neighbor and kiss him on the cheek? Right? If you don't, you're sinning. Many times in the Bible it says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, because that's cultural, right? We don't really do that. That's kind of that, you know, Palestine or whatever culture. But we do apply the principle of warmly greet each other, right? Receive each other, love each other, in, in, embrace each other in fellowship, right? That's how we do it. The principle. Just because we don't greet each other with a holy kiss doesn't mean I don't need to be nice to my brother or sister anymore. No, the principle's still there. We apply it in a different way. The, this principle of a design within creation, that is still meant for the church now. 
at least in this church age. Now, when Jesus returns, there'll be no more marriage and things are going to change in different ways. But here on this earth, we are to reflect God. We are to live out his design to the glory of God. And, and as much as I love my, my evangelical egalitarian brothers and sisters, and, and you know, many of them love the Lord so much, love the Lord more than me, I think this is, this is the Achilles heel of, of the, the argument that, that you know, well, these things are just cultural. Well, because again and again and again, when Paul talks about, or in the Bible talks about men and women and differences, it gets rooted in Genesis 1 and 2 over and over again, right? Oh, what about polygamy? Yeah, polygamy wasn't in the Garden of Eden. That, that was not good, right? What about this? What about that? Yeah, it wasn't in the Garden of Eden, but this was a part of God's design from the beginning. And if, if we don't understand this, how to differentiate between culture and principle, you'll get eaten alive. You'll get eaten alive. People say, what about this? What about that? What? You're going to be, oh, I, I don't know. I, I guess you're right. I guess we then just apply the Bible however we want to, however we see fit. But no, we need to discern what the principles are there. Now, verse 10, he says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head. So this is why. This is why the head covering should be worn in that culture. There should be this representation of her femaleness and of her understanding of God's design and order. But then he says, because of the angels. Oh, man, what? Paul, what are you talking about? You know what he's talking about? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I was like, come on, man. This wasn't hard enough. What do you mean? Because of the angels. Thomas Schreiner, theologian, he said this. We don't know for sure. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks a lot. But nobody knows for sure. And if they claim to know for sure, show me the data. I don't know. But he says this. The best solution is probably that the angels are good angels who assist in worship and desire to see the order of creation maintained. Oh my gosh. Okay. What does that mean? All right? That means, and I think he's right, they're angels here. They're angels like here. And you know, as we worship God and as we live as a Christian community, the angels are blessed to be a part of a worship and a community that is living according to God's design as they minister and serve us, because that's what angels do, the Bible says. They support us. They protect us. They defend us. They, they're involved in the life of the church in so many ways we don't see. Just earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul was saying, don't go into that pagan temple. There are demons there. Oh, you can eat at your home. Demons aren't there. Thank God. <laughs> but don't go in that temple. There's a spiritual reality you don't realize. I think he's saying here too, there's a spiritual reality we don't, we don't even realize. When we worship the Lord here, when we gather together, the angels are here worshiping with us. They're a part of this in some crazy unseen way. And, and, and I think Paul is saying, you know, our gender distinction, when we honor these distinctions and these roles and we honor the design of God, we are, we are a part of a cosmic thing. God's cosmic design and ordering that we don't even realize. We're part of something so much bigger than we can see with our own eyes. And angels are blessed when we walk and we live according to the design of God. And they rejoice as they worship together with us. And they assist and minister to a church that is living according to God's design. I think that's what he's saying. And um, wow. I don't know what else to say, but wow. Um, but in verses 11 and 12 here, going on, Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. And I think what Paul's saying is here, hey, listen, let me just really make sure this is clear to everybody here. Lest anybody, lest any of you knucklehead men start thinking that you can be you know, you're, throw your weight around and be all macho and arrogant and inconsiderate. Lest you start thinking that women are, are, you're not independent of women. Women are extremely important. They are a part of the design of God. You wouldn't even be here if there were no women. Chicken or the egg, both. <laughs> we need both, right? 
you wouldn't even be here. There'd be no ability to, to, to be fruitful and multiply and to represent God on the earth. They're an integral part of God's plan. And that's why he says, but everything comes from God. This is all the design of God. And it is good. It is good. Don't think that women are inferior or not needed. You need them. They need you. Both are from God and they are good. Man, you know, Christine and I were so different. But I thank God. I know that sounds stereotypical, right? But we're so different, so many different ways. But I thank God. I thank God. I would, I would feel so sorry for my kids if my house were filled with two of me. You know, that, they wouldn't survive, right? But in, 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 even in, in my marriage, I'm so thankful for the differences. I'm so thankful that Christine is different from me. And I hope that she's thankful that I'm different from her. But I, I am so thankful anyway about these differences in, in the beauty and the design of God. Now, here's, here's the thing as well. Again, in our society, you can choose to believe the increasingly vocal um, mantra of this age that the claim that there are any fixed, quote-unquote, fixed differences between the genders or, or, or even the concept of gender itself is it's oppressive, it's antiquated, it's tyrannical, it, it doesn't befit moderns such as ourselves. And you can, you can choose to believe that increasingly loud chorus around us that's taking place. Or you can choose to believe that, no, everything comes from God, including these differences, and it is good. It is good. It is something to be embraced, to praise God for. And, and, and as we live according to these, this design of God, we see the blessings and, and, the, and the blessings of the Holy Spirit within our church, within our community. So getting around to, to closing here. Paul says here at the end, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, let me read this one more time here. Does, the very, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering? Now, again, back to the question of hair length, right? I said I would talk about that. What does that mean, Ulysses? So, so how does this work then? So, I don't, you know, I have a short haircut. I'm a woman, I have a short haircut. Is that sinful? I'm a man with a long haircut. You know, is that sinful? No, no, it's not. But what is Paul saying here? I think what Paul is saying is this. Look, we, we, we can see, can't you see, Corinthians? Can't you see, especially in that Corinthian culture, that if a woman were to shave her head, that that would just be, that would, that would by the very nature of things, you could see that wouldn't be appropriate. I believe the Corinthians would have said, yeah. That's true, right? Can't you see that if men grew their hair out this long, that would be inappropriate? I think in the Corinthian church, there in that culture and society, they go, yeah, that's, that's not right, right? Why? Because, because they, they can see that there's something within them in the way that God has made that they could see that women should be women and men should be men. There are differences. Now, we can't always rely upon that because society can can walk more and more away from the teaching of God and begin to jettison those things altogether. But at least here in the church, in the Corinthian church, Paul's saying, don't you guys see that? That there are these differences, right? Um, so it's not about hair length, but what about today? What are those things today? Now, me speaking to the church here, to you guys, to those of you who are Christians, I could say, I would say that, you know, um, what if next week I were to come in here to preach, I stand up on the stage, but I was wearing this flowing ball gown, right? And, um, you know, high heels and pearls or, or something like that, right? Now, there are certainly people in our society now who would, who would applaud that and say, oh, that, that's totally fine. And that is, that is uh, you're being so brave, right? And that's, that's happening more and more in our society. But as I speak to the church, and as Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, he, he would say, don't, don't you, wouldn't you realize, don't you feel like there's something inappropriate like that? I think most of you would say, yeah, Ulysses, like, you know, I, I don't think you should do that. That wouldn't be appropriate for you. Now, if I, I don't know, if I were to go to Scotland and, and wear a kilt, right? Totally fine. Why? Because in that culture, there's nothing effeminate about kilts. Men wear kilts. It's understood men can wear kilts and women wear different things or, or whatnot. 
Here in our culture now, we recognize that, you know, Ulysses should not wear a dress in high heels, you know, next Sunday. And there are certain things that are appropriate and inappropriate. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Like John Calvin, in his uh, first epistle to the Corinthians, he said this. Now he means by natural, talking about this verse, natural, what was accepted by common consent and usage at that time. For long hair was not always regarded as a disgraceful thing in man. So today in our culture, men with long hair, no big deal. No big deal. You're, you know, you're a surfer, you're, you're, you're whatever, whatever, you know. It's just normal now, normal, right? You got long hair, it's like, cool. Most men still don't, but if you have it, it's totally fine. Women can have very short haircuts, right? And, and things have changed in our culture where those are not necessarily identified with what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. But there are certain things in the culture that still are, and we should recognize that. That's what Paul is saying here. The, the culture can change, but the principle, men and women are distinct. Men and women have different roles. Those things don't change. And, and here, Paul's saying in verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is not just a local thing. It's, it's not even you know, cultural in Corinth, but not in other parts of the Mediterranean. No, it was in all the churches, Paul is saying. So you know, this is why, well, what does it mean? Well, Ulysses, do you want me as a woman to wear a head covering? Next week when I come to church, I grab my jacket and put it over my head right now? No, no, again, that was a cultural thing. But what do we do? We do believe in the teaching of the Bible that the church should be led by men who are qualified to be elders. We do believe that God has called, within marriage, men to be faithful servant leaders, servants, but leaders within their home. And, and as we, as a church if we respect that, if we acknowledge that, or if we walk in that teaching, that is our way of men not covering their heads and women putting a hood on their heads, so to speak. It's, it's the way that we embrace that within our church and within our families. Um, uh, that's, how, that's what it looks like for us. Now, what do we do with this, right? Um, Listen, I would say a few things. First is if this is something that's really challenging and, and you're wrestling through this and, and you know, totally understand, right? This is a really, really, um, first, just difficult to interpret passage, but also what does it mean for in our days? And there are definitely things that can seem difficult for us to accept in our days. Be, as Paul said, a good Berean and study. Study the scriptures for yourselves. Study what the Bible has to say about men and women. And, and how it connects it to Genesis. And, and I would be happy to talk to you more about that. Secondly, also, I think the words of uh, Galatians here, chapter 1, verse 10, are important. I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time because we're, we're closing up here. But when Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And uh, these words are really, really convicting to me because I do feel like in our cultural milieu where we are today and here in the Bay Area, this is, these are teachings that are becoming more and more challenging to hold. Um, and more and more, they will come at a cost. Holding to these teachings will come at a cost. And the question is, are we willing to count that cost? Not by being arrogant or pushy or anything like that, but at the same time, not being fearful, not being ashamed of God's design and his teaching and thereby bringing dishonor to our Lord because it's from God and it is good. So this is a verse that challenges me. Am I, if I'm trying to approve, get the approval of people, if I'm trying to please them by what I say and my views, then I'm not a servant of Christ. You can't be, you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. Again, that doesn't mean being rude or obtuse, but it does mean saying, God, I will not be ashamed of your good design because it comes from you. Brothers and sisters, when we live according to God's design, it is a life, it is a church 
filled with glory and honor. And as we are faithful to the teaching of God, we display the wisdom of God in the church and in our marriages, not just to us, not just to people around us, but to the cosmic realm, to the angels that are even here right now watching and going, yes, yes, trust in the word of God. Be faithful to his teaching. Don't don't be afraid of man. Be a servant of God. And and if you need to wrestle with this, you know, and and be a good Berean, that's great, do that. But if this is what you believe, I encourage you, let us hold it wholeheartedly, trusting in the Lord that this is good and that this is flourishing and life, not just for men, but for women for women. It is so good for women because God loves women and women were made in his image. And God's design leads to life. Can we trust him in that? Let's um, stand and let's pray together before we close. God, I, I just want to pray before we close in worship. Lord, what a challenging um, teaching, God. Lord, especially in this day and age. But Lord, we humbly submit ourselves to your word and we pray that your word would work through our hearts, God. Lord, and that we would would hold your word in such high esteem that we would study it if we don't understand it. If there are any things that we're not sure about, that we would go before the word and diligently study and seek to know you and the truth of God. And Lord, we just pray, God, would you give us the boldness to be servants of God and not seeking the approval of man. God, help us, Lord. Lord, things uh, in this society, it's becoming more and more challenging. Lord, give us boldness. Lord, God, help us to honor Christ, Lord, who gave his life for us, who shed his blood so that we would not need to live in fear, but that we can live as servants of God with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, We come and we worship you now with the angels, Lord. May your name be glorified and honored.